0: Blog Talk Radio The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action Please go to our website at the fourpersons.com or our blog site at the 4 to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at the fourpersons.com.
1: Blog talk radio show fans.
0: This is the Welcome to, to the Catholic, Catholic Ken Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. Nine, and six, now, five, let's five, welcome our host, Ken Litchfield. For
1: copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at I'm also av- available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com, or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. So, my friend Ed R. writes, Imagine a pyramid which represents religion. The base is guilt, upon which is laid fear. Religion uses guilt and fear to incite works, to appease which one applied, result, applied results in pride. Pride is the capstone of religion, but as in any pyramid scheme, Only a few get to the top. Everyone else is trying to work off their guilt and fear. It is a bondage that Jesus confronted with tongue lashing directed at the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees of Judaism. They sought to entrap and discredit him and asked Jesus, why are your disciples disregarding our traditions? And Jesus answers, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition?" You hypocrites. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. So the Catholic answer is this is an interesting proposal that you present. I am blessed to be in the Catholic Church where Jesus told his apostles what they must do to be his followers. The apostles went out and taught what Jesus taught and did what Jesus told them they had to do, they passed on their authority to their successors who continue to guide Jesus' followers today. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the Jews. They realize they are guilty of killing Jesus. They fear going to hell for what they did. Peter explains to them that Jesus said that they need to get baptized for the forgiveness of sins and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Begins their relationship with Jesus. They grow in their new relationship with Jesus by doing the works that he calls us to do. Protestants also have people that guide them in what they think the Bible teaches we have to do to be saved. They claim that their authority comes from the Bible and that they are just explaining to their followers. The Romans' road is built on the foundation that we are all guilty of sin, that sin makes us afraid we'll end up in hell. We begin a relationship with Jesus through a profession of faith in him. Then we do the works that Jesus calls us to do. So it depends on how, on what meaning you wish to attach to the different levels of the pyramid. And yes, Jesus did start a religion, but it's not so much that he wanted us to feel guilty for our sins. He's saying like you're in a burning house and this is the way out of the house. And you might be afraid of the fire, but Jesus shows us the way to escape the burning fires of hell. And that begins with baptism and continues with everything else that Jesus taught, like doing the works of um, mercy and also eating his flesh and drinking his blood to have eternal life. And the idea in the Catholic Church is not to get to the top and be the Pope. Um, There's plenty of people that want to be their own Pope, but the idea is to be the servant of all because Jesus told his apostles at the Last Supper, the greatest among you, is the one who serves the most. We serve not to be the best, but as extensions of the body of Christ in this world. Because baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ, and we, the works we do are Christ's work done through us. So when you keep that in mind, You get the right understanding of religion and not this poor pyramid analogy that Ed comes up with. My friend Kashif over in Pakistan asks this question on the behalf of the Pentecostals over there. What does John 4.24 mean to you? So Jesus and the woman of Samaria are at Jacob's well. Jesus says, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, it is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I, that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Our ancestors worked on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming This is the uh, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. What Pentecostals point to is like, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth and if you are familiar with the Protestant Pentecostal branch you probably understand that Pentecostals are rather vibrant in their worship um, as moved by the Holy Spirit and this is this verse 24 is something that they would point to to show that what they're doing is the right way to do it. Um, And when Catholics worship at Mass, we do have the Holy Spirit there with us, you know, opening our minds that can open our minds and become more in tune with the Mass if you are open to the Holy Spirit. But God is outside of time and space, so we describe him as spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. So wherever the Holy Spirit is, so is Jesus and God the Father. We humans are spiritual and physical composite beings. We worship God in both a spiritual and physical sense. We offer praise to God and represent his physical sacrifice for us at every Mass. Protestants say the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. Catholics say it is the church. But what does the Bible say? How can the Pope make dogmas that are not in the Bible? The Bible says that we are all priests, but the Catholic Church has priests and lay people. So, to answer this question, the Protestants say the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice, and the Catholics say that it is the church. Well, this is what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 15, before the apostles had a New Testament, there was a dispute in the church on whether Gentile Christians had to become Jews first, and the church met at the Council of Jerusalem and established that, no, you don't have to become a Jew first, and you don't have to practice the Jewish works of the law, Um, which meant that all the Gentile men didn't have to get circumcised, and you don't have to keep the kosher laws and all those kind of things. You don't have to have a festival for a new moon or all those other Jewish works of the law. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build this church. And then he says to the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So. Jesus gives his authority to his apostles. Now, how do we know that Jesus passed, that authority that Jesus gave his apostles is passed on to others? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy telling him, remember when I laid hands on you. And in 2 Timothy, Paul again reminds Timothy, remember when I laid hands on you. That's how the authority is passed on. And then Paul goes on to tell Timothy that when you are looking for a bishop for a new church, uh, you know, find one that has a stable household uh, and runs his household well. Uh, He says that, you know, he should be a man with only one wife. Now, some Protestants will say that that means that every bishop needs to be married but they are interpreting that in a new modern way Uh, at the time that paul wrote to timothy there weren't a lot of single men waiting around to become bishops but there were men that had a wife and a family and so you have to work with what you have the advantage that a early bishop had if he wasn't married is that he could devote himself fully to his church. And if the Jews and Romans came to kill him, he could remain faithful to the church because he didn't have to worry about what would happen to his family after he got killed. So that's the advantage of being a single minister in the church. Uh, and even in our modern times, you know, Protestant ministers, they may have a Know, a wife and children and then when they're they have to uh, choose between ministering to their church and attending their family events whereas a Catholic priest who is single you can choose to serve your church and you don't have to worry about taking care of your wife and children and both Paul and Jesus tell us that being single is the better way. But even in the Catholic Church, we do have married clergy. Uh, most of the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church allow people to be married, clergy to be married. And deacons can be married, but they once they become a deacon, they do live a celibate life with their wife. And to this question, how can the Pope make dogmas that are not in the Bible? Well, again, going back to Matthew chapter 16, the Jesus tells Peter and the apostles that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And in Acts chapter 15, the apostles met together with the rest of the church and they worked out this difficulty that they were having on whether Gentile Christians needed to become Jews first before they became Christians. And the only scripture available at that time was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament said that the followers of God had to be circumcised and keep the 613 Mosaic laws. But the church at that time made a decree that was binding on all Christians that directly contradicted that scripture. Apostles in the church were making this decision. They didn't look in the New Testament to find out if they had that authority. They had the authority from Jesus and they exercised that authority. And that authority carries on even today. The Pope and the Cardinals and the Bishops give binding decrees to the church to guide the church. Uh, after the Council of Jerusalem, they sent out a binding decree with authorized men that said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us etc, etc. Acts chapter 15 is a great example of the church exercising authority from the very beginning. And because Jesus left His authority with his church, we have no reason to not believe that carries on today. Decrees a dogma. there is always biblical support for it, but it may not be specifically laid out in the Bible. However, the Holy Spirit guides the Pope in his interpretation of the Bible. Also, the 2,000-year-old history of the Catholic Church guides the Pope in his interpretation of the Bible. The Pope doesn't just you know, come up with a new idea one day and say, hey, I'm gonna make this a dogma. No, the Pope uh, gives a clarification teaching on something, and that can become a dogma. There's three levels of uh, teaching in the Catholic Church. There's disciplines, which can be changed. There's doctrines, which can evolve. And then there's dogmas, which are established teachings that cannot be changed. They can be further clarified if there's a question that comes up on them. Now this question, the Bible says we are all priests, but the Catholic Church has priests and lay people. And first we need to establish what does a priest do? A priest acts on the behalf of Jesus to guide other people in worship and in following the way that Jesus calls us to live. And the father of a household was of his household in the Jewish culture and in Christianity. Again, the father is supposed to be the head spiritual leading leader of the household. So all you dads out there, that's your job to lead your family in the Catholic faith. However, even in Jewish times there were specific men the levites and the temple priests that did higher level worship activities in the worship of God as Moses taught and as God commanded so what they the Jewish priests did you know wasn't just something they made up it's what God told Moses to do and At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his priests, do this in remembrance of me. And the Greek word for that is anamnesis. And that Greek word anamnesis means to do this again in a new unit of time in the future. And when the Jews celebrated the Passover, it was like they were doing it for the first time even though they had been doing it for many, many years. And when at the Mass, when we are doing the Eucharistic prayer, we are re-celebrating the Last Supper that Jesus had with his apostles. And we are celebrating that again in a new unit of time, as if we are doing it with Jesus for the first time. So that's how we need to understand the ordained clergy in the Catholic Church. They are authorized by Jesus through apostolic succession to the bishops and the bishops to the priests to act on the behalf of Jesus to implement the sacraments. After Jesus is resurrected in John chapter 20, Jesus tells his apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, and whatever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whatever sins you retain are retained. So here, Jesus is giving his apostles the authority to forgive sins. Uh, As I previously mentioned, Paul writes about how he passed the authority on to Timothy. Um, In Titus chapter 1, Paul says to Titus, uh, remember what I taught you and go teach You know, um, I think he sends them to the island of Crete, tells them to teach them correctly, and to pass his authority on to other people there that will pass their authority on. So, right there in Titus chapter 1, we have four levels of apostolic succession Jesus to Paul, Paul to Titus, Titus to the bishops he would ordain, and the priests or bishops that they would ordain. So moving on to the next question here, Patrick writes, I hope this question is not considered blasphemous, but I feel it needs to be asked. God is often described as infinite in his attributes, but at least humanly speaking, the concept of infinity is difficult, if not impossible, to truly comprehend. It is possible that God is actually finite, or is it possible that God is actually finite, but is merely described as infinite because he seems to be so far from our inferior point of view. Well, as I previously mentioned, God is outside of time and space. So he's not bound by time and space. So that's why we think of him as being infinite, because he's not in time and space. <laughs> and so when we're describing God, it's more, it's easier to describe him as in the things that he is not than in things that he is because what he is is so far beyond what we have any idea here on earth being outside of time and space he's not limited by time and space as because he is the creator of time and space so that's how you can describe god as by his negative attributes Um, God is all-knowing because he sees into the past and into the future. Because he sees all time as one moment in time. God is not limited to any particular physical location, but he can be at any particular physical location in our world. God is three persons, but one God. Again, that's another concept that is beyond our understanding. Like, how can God be three people and one person? But we know that God is a trinity, as in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And although they have different, Um, attributes, you know, God the Father acts as the, like, a good father would act as a guide for the family, God the Son is the future of the family, and Jesus is the one who came on earth to save us through his sacrifice on the cross, and the Holy Spirit is who Jesus and God the Father sent after Jesus ascended into heaven to guide his church, but they are all the same God. Some couples, um, the man and wife, are well in tune to one another, and they both have the same ideas at the same time. And that is a little bit of an analogy between the Trinity, where everything that God the Father knows, God the Son knows, God the Holy Spirit knows. So let's move on to the next question. This comes from Steve F. And Steve F. asks, Catholics, why didn't Jesus say on the cross, behold my mother? And he's referring to Jesus when he was on the cross, and he says to John, behold your mother. And Steve is trying to say that, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say behold my mother, because He was, you know, God the Son and beyond the human mother that was at the foot of the cross. But Jesus says to John the Apostle, that behold your mother, because Jesus was giving the care of his mother to the Apostle John. And this is another indication that Mary was a perpetual virgin since Mary should have been given to Jesus' next older brother, if he had one. But since he didn't have one, Jesus gives Mary to the Apostle John. Since baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ, the church, as shown in Acts chapter 2 and 22, Mary becomes the mother of all believers that keep the commandments, as shown in Revelation chapter 12. We have to understand in the Jewish culture of the time of Jesus and beforehand that women were in covenant with God through their husband or their father. And a woman had no rights in Jewish society except through their husband or father. So that's why it was important for Jesus to give the care of his mother to the apostle John so that she would have someone to take care of her in Jewish society. That was the great thing about Christianity in that it gives equal dignity to both men and women. And it was a great attraction for first century Christian women to join the church because both in Roman and Jewish society, Women were considered second-class citizens, and that's why we are blessed to have women in the church today, even if they can't serve as priests or bishops or the pope. But we are blessed with all the many other things that the women do in the church today. Now, this is a question that comes from Amanda. She asks, Calvin believed human nature was fixed. What does he mean? And what does the Catholic Church teach? So the answer is, John Calvin started out with the good intention of wanting to give all glory to God. Part of John Calvin's theology, as represented in the TULIP acronym, is total depravity. John Calvin taught that we are totally depraved and can do nothing to save ourselves. Calvin taught that even after we are saved, we are still sinners. However, God chooses whom he will save and the rest are reprobate and will go to hell. Calvin taught that most people will go to hell. Calvin also taught that we don't have free will and that God is sovereign and chooses what will happen. Calvin taught that God choosing whom he will save and whom he will damn to hell, showed his sovereignty and power. True love requires a free will choice to return. It teaches that we have free will to choose to love God or not. Adam and Eve had free will to follow God's one and only law for them. Abraham had, to, had free will to do what God called him to do. Moses and the Israelites had free will to follow God's law. When people follow God's law, it goes well for them. When they don't follow God's law, it goes bad for them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 tells us God wants all men to be saved. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the sinful Jews that listened to Peter's speech about Jesus had free will to choose to repent get baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. If you actually read Acts chapter 2, the Jews asked Peter and the apostles, what must we do? And that shows that they had a choice to ask what they must do and to then do it or not. Now, Protestants that follow John Calvin's new theology will tell you that You know, God chose these people, and God didn't choose those people. So these people are going to heaven, those people are going to hell. And they deny that we have free will to choose to follow God or not. But we see from the very beginning of Christianity, the Jews had the opportunity to choose, and they asked, what must we do? which shows that we have to do something to be saved. When a person goes from unsaved to saved, something is done. It's something done by God's grace. And if you are of the age of reason, you know, it's done as a free will choice. In the Catholic Church, we also give this initial grace to babies and also the Orthodox Church and many Protestant churches also. But some Protestants you know, claim that you have to believe first and then get baptized because they read what they read in the Bible about people being converted. But you have to also remember that Christianity builds on Judaism. And the Jews came into covenant with God when they were eight days old through circumcision. Eight-day-old male babies are not able to choose for themselves whether to follow God or not. And baptism is comparable to circumcision as shown in, I believe it's Colossians chapter 2. Let's see. We have free will to choose to love and follow God or not. God loves us enough to let us choose him because true love requires a free will choice. Otherwise, it is coercion. And if you really want to get into learning about the difference between Jesus' sacrifice from a Protestant or Catholic point of view, check out the um internet page called Called to Communion. Jim A writes this, a very common and natural inclination is to think that one must change one's behavior and do better in order to be saved. That of course is works salvation one in which man earns his salvation in whole or in part. But scripture is very clear that our efforts, our works, remembering that the works of the law cover everything, according to Jim see uh, Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first commandment, and it is like it. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets and the Ten Commandments. Now, Jim says that our works, which covers everything, um, cannot save us this sometimes includes ritual works of man such as water baptism and yet this is never taught in scripture when we understand the text when we understand the text yes okay in john 6, chapter 6 verses starting at verse 37 jesus teaches explicitly about salvation believe in him a true complete and total belief and trust and he assures you of eternal life clear and compelling words it would be great if we could just pour water on everyone in the world and they would be saved but that's not true so this is my answer for jim baptism makes us a member of the body of christ and we find that in acts chapter 2 when the jews asked the apostles what must must we do to be saved and Jesus says, well, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And the uh, Acts chapter 2 goes on to say that 3,000 were added to the church that day through bat. When we go to Acts chapter 22, when Uh, Paul is recounting the story of how he was blinded and Ananias comes to him uh, to baptize him. Notice Ananias comes to baptize Paul and he's sent by the Holy Spirit. Um, Ananias says to Paul, well yeah when Jesus blinds Paul he says to Paul who was known as Saul at that time that's his Jewish name Saul Saul why do you persecute me now, Jesus had already ascended in heaven and if you read the book of acts you find that Paul was going around going out and uh, He had authorization from the Pharisees to arrest Christians and bring them back for trial. So he was persecuting the Christians, the church. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. Yet, well, Jesus personally here on earth. But Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which tells us that Christians are jesus body here on the church, on the earth we are all members of the body of Christ through baptism and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 it says that when a man goes into a prostitute he unites the body of Christ to that prostitute which keeps up his sin so we know that as Christians we are members of the body of Christ And when we are baptized, we are fully sanctified at that moment because Acts chapter 2 tells us baptism forgives sins. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it tells us that we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. So first we're washed, baptism. We are sanctified, made holy, and we are justified, able to stand in the presence of God. However, since we still have concupiscence, we tend to sin later on in life. Fortunately, Jesus gave his authority to forgive sins to his apostles, so we can have our baptismal state restored. Salvation is a process that begins with a one-time event. There's a difference between being saved and being sanctified. We become sanctified by giving more and more of ourselves to God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 27 says, But nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Catholic Church offers a path to full sanctification. Necessary to enter heaven. You can't fool God the Father by claiming Jesus already paid for your sins. Jesus' sacrifice is the infinite sacrifice sufficient to atone for our sins. However, God the Father didn't punish Jesus for our sins. Instead, God the Father offered his son, Jesus, as the infinite sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This is a foundational theological concept that needs to be understood to get the rest of your theology right. You have free will to follow the new theology invented by John Calvin in the 1500s, or the original theology taught by Jesus and passed on by the apostles to the bishops. And to all of you Protestants out there that are following this new theology invented by John Calvin, Choose wisely, because on your judgment day, you will be held accountable for what you did with the knowledge that you have. And I'm going to unpack this uh, idea of an atoning sacrifice as opposed to a penal substitution sacrifice. Many Protestants are taught, based on John Calvin's new theology, that Jesus took all the punishment for our sins, so all we have to do is believe in him, and then we get off you know scot free as they say um, without any punishment for our sins. but if you go back to our Jewish roots in of Christianity, the Jews when they would sin, they would go to the temple and confess their sins to the temple priests, Then they would offer something in sacrifice to atone for their sins. And we find even like when the apostle, not the apostle, but King David, a man after God's own heart, when he sinned with Bathsheba, the child that Bathsheba conceived through David, died before it was eight days old and able to become a member of God's family through circumcision. So our sins have consequences and we can't always make up for our sins, but we can offer something in atonement for our sins. And Jesus sacrifice is the infinite atoning sacrifice for our sins which provides sufficient grace to forgive all sins, past, present, and future. So we can agree with our Protestant brothers and sisters that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is for all sins, past, present, and future. However, where we disagree is on how that is applied to us. Protestants are taught this new tradition made up by John Calvin in the 1500s of penal substitution where our sins are put on Jesus and God punishes Jesus for our sins. Now, any child will tell you that it is unfair for one child to be punished for what the other kid did wrong. And we adults also see that same sense of justice. And since God is so far above us, he does not bring on that same uh, injustice of putting our sins on Jesus. However, Jesus' atoning sacrifice does provide sufficient grace offered to us through the priests during, during confession who are act in the person of Jesus to forgive our sins and God's grace forgives our well the priest forgives our sins on behalf of Jesus by God's grace it's not something that they do on their own it's Jesus acting through them because as I mentioned earlier Baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus authorized certain people to act on his behalf. And then we also, as male heads of our household, have duties to be the religious leader of our household and act as a priest in that respect. And then all Christians have the... the priesthood duty of sharing the truth of Christianity with other people. Let's see, looks like we've got time for one more. <clears throat> so, Steve F. writes, uh, referring to a picture of Jesus and Mary, Catholics don't worship Mary. Where would anyone get that idea? And then he posts a picture of God over Jesus on the cross over Mary. If you think about this picture where it shows God the Father over Jesus, his son, on the cross, and Mary is underneath Jesus, of course, a picture like that is not a form of worship. Um, And actually is a great indication of how um, God the Father, God the Son, and Mary are ranked. God the Father, of course, is above all and in all. And God the Son, Jesus, shows his atoning sacrifice on the cross, which was the infinite sacrifice sufficient to save everybody. And it shows Mary as a human being who walked the earth, who God used to bring Jesus into our world so he could offer himself in sacrifice. Now, Steve F., of course, being an anti-Catholic, looks at those three in one picture and thinks that we're worshiping all three equally. So it all depends on the mindset that you start with not so much what the picture shows and if you look at the picture as in god the father is above all jesus offering himself on the cross and the fact that mary came to save us through jesus there's a saying that goes no mary no jesus because Jesus came to save us through Mary, and then if you know Mary's role in our salvation, then you know jesus uh, being fully God and fully man uh, let's see. Protestants may have forgotten what real worship looks like, since now they have praise concerts for worship instead of true worship, which involves sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Mass is offered by Jesus to himself, as he did at the Last Supper. Perhaps Protestants shouldn't have any pictures in their homes, workplace, or wallets, because that would be worshiping whomever is in that image. That is the theology of the Amish, if you want a church to join that teaches that. Having a picture is not worship. Having a statue is not worship. The thoughts and intentions of actions behind it can be worship. Poor misguided Protestants are blinded by the attacks leveled against the Catholic Church. So, they can avoid having to look at their own various conflicting churches and theology. So, that's the one thing that all Protestants agree on that the Catholics got it wrong. <laughs> However, I live in a small town with five different conflicting Protestant churches. So, when The Protestants all get on the same page, then they will have a foundation to actually move against the Catholic Church. But as long as they are fractured into many different denominations and growing in denominations every day, um, they don't really have a foundation to attack the Catholic Church. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. That's Catholic with a K and at the number four persons dot com. If you would like to have me come and speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield 61 at gmail.com or looking up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.
0: At Arizona State University, we offer a wide variety of degree programs online to match all kinds of interests and career aspirations. Programs that are taught by the same notable faculty who teach on campus and designed using innovative technology to improve learning outcomes and equip you for post-graduation success. That's why 87% of ASU Online graduates indicated they were promoted at work or
1: received an increase in salary after earning their degree. Find your program at asuonline.asu.edu. Celebrate the start of 2024 with Cal Ranch's New Year's Sale. It's chock full of cold weather essentials for less. Save 40% off winter hats, gloves, and boots for the family. And save up to $30 on Mr. Heater propane portable buddy heaters. And 20%
0: off electric household heaters. We're Cal Ranch store, a ranch and home store, and so much more. Save now through January 16th during Cal Ranch's New Year's Sale.